Before we get to the podcast this week, support for the Rigsby Report, which you are listening to now, is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the -the below-the-waist grooming champion of the entire world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower. Is there a better name for a trimmer for your junk than the Lawnmower? The Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right. The fourth installment. So join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer. 20% off and, and free worldwide shipping if you use the code DOD. So you go to manscaped.com or go to the Manscaped app. Punch in the code D-O-D for Dirt on Dirt. And guys, trust me on this. I'm very transparent. I speak the truth. You got to be trimming. For goodness sake, you got to be trimming. Last week on the podcast, I said I was going to come up with a better term than woolly mammoth. I didn't. I didn't come up with a better term. So don't be a woolly mammoth. I'm sticking with that. Your lady doesn't want it. You don't want it. Get Manscaped. Punch in the code DOD for 20% off and free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com. A new sponsor that we've had for about a month now on the Rigsby Report, and uh, I'm excited. The official grooming sponsor of the Rigsby Report. All right, let's go. And most importantly, welcome to dirtondirt.com. If I have mentioned it once on the air during the 23 Rigsby reports I've done, I have mentioned it a hundred times. Part of the reason I can't do this podcast every single week is that it's typically a lot of research, right? Take Jimmy Mars, for example, that I had on, I think about 10 days ago now. It's not just me calling up Jimmy and bullshitting for 90 minutes. I could do that. And with a guy like him, it would probably turn out okay. But by and large, I really like to talk to the people that know the person I'm interviewing. You just get so many good tidbits and backstory items. I think it makes for a better interview. And I think so far in the 23 that I've done, people would probably agree with that. And there's one funny thing that I've noticed in so many of my research interviews, one name, and I'm not joking when I say this, if I've done 23 podcasts, which means I've done 23 sets of research, I bet I have heard the name Hoghead 75 times because you know each each one of those is three or four or five people I interview for those that don't know who Hoghead is he is Robbie Allen current crew chief of Greg Satterley but that's really even underselling his status in dirt late model racing most would likely agree he is not just a crew chief but one of the dirt greatest dirt late model crew chiefs of all time and when you start to tell the stories of the great moments that have happened in the history of our sport or the people who have influenced decisions and the politics, and I don't mean politics in a bad way, I just mean, mean get together and make a decision, Robbie Allen's name comes up over and over and over. Well, Hoghead was there for this, or well, if you ask Hog, he'll tell you how that story happened. It was clear to me that Robbie Allen was more than just a crew chief. So many of the things that we hold near and dear to our hearts in dirt late model racing, he was either a close observer of or had a hand in shaping, you know, despite not being a driver or a series crew guy or worked for a series or a tire company or something like that. And that's not easy to do. So I thought I want to have him on and talk about his life in racing, our sport, 
where it sits today. And if you don't know this, much like Jimmy Mars last week, Robbie Allen is painfully honest. He is a great talker, and I thought he was also a perfect guest. So enough of me talking it up, uh, talking him up, I should say. Let's get to the man himself, Hoghead Robbie Allen. You've heard me say this a few times already in my lead-in to the interview, but Robbie Allen's nickname is Hoghead. But someone recently said to me, you know, he doesn't actually like being called that. Did you know that? And it stopped me in my tracks. The only way I've ever known Robbie for the years and years that I've known him is by Hoghead. Every driver, every crew member, literally everybody calls him this. So to find out that he might not like it, I I had to dive into this and start this interview off. Joining me on the Integra Shocks and Springs Hotline is a guy that I don't know what to call now. Robbie, let's start here. Is it true you don't want to be called Hoghead or am I getting misinformation? No, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I mean, I I probably would prefer people that don't know me to walk up to me and call me Hoghead. But, you know, I mean, it's just a a nickname that I've had for a long time. it, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Where did you get the nickname, by the way? I guess I don't know where it came from. Well, actually, it was it was not actually my nickname. It was they used to call my dad Hoghead because he had a big head. I don't really have a very big head. Uh, and year, years ago, we were at Masterbuild building a race car, and one of the guys that was there with me helping me build a car he kept talking about hoghead this and hoghead that and cater thought he was talking about me and he was talking about my father and i tried to explain that to cater at one at one point but he just always started he just called me hoghead and the more he called me hoghead than than keith did and other people that worked at master built and eventually i was hoghead so <laughs> and it was one of them things it was it wasn't too many years later that my dad passed away. So, it, you know, I necessarily, if you'd asked me back then, did I want to be called Hoghead? I'd have said no. But being it was really my dad's nickname, there was stuff that, that people that knew my dad might have called him. It, I just kind of let it go and never really said anything about it. And after all these years, it, it doesn't really matter to me. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not overly concerned what people say about me or call me <laughs> on any level anyway. So, I've been called a lot worse than Hoghead, I'm sure. You're the first crew guy that I've had on the podcast, but I don't even really like calling you a crew guy because I truly mean this when I say it, Hog. I feel like your contribution to the sport is a lot more than just a guy who's worked on race cars, right? As I said in the open, you've sort of been there for all of it in modern dirt late model racing. And I want to set up a little background for the people at home. You know, there might be people that don't know this. You just mentioned your dad. I know we're going to talk about Bobby a little bit more, but tell us how you got into racing, if you could, kind of your life growing up all the way through your first job in motorsports. So from birth to kind of your first job at Racing Hog, and as you kind of get into your teen years here, just tell people your background a little bit, if you could. Well, I was I was born into racing. My family raced from the time I, you know, from I was a little kid, I I can't remember not going to the races. You know, my dad always owned cars. Uh, so, you know, it's just kind of what we did. You know, every every week we went to the races and we raced. And it, I can't really remember a time that we didn't race. And that's like Hagerstown area. Like so, you're from that Baltimore Hagerstown area. So that was kind of home for you guys, right? Well, yeah, like uh, there was a racetrack 
that was not very far from where I grew up. I grew up in between Baltimore and Annapolis, probably about maybe about a hundred miles from Hagerstown, uh, right down by not real far from the from the BWI airport. There used to be a racetrack right there, and that's where my dad and a lot of people around that area. That's where they started, you know, started racing at. And uh, we probably didn't really come up and race at like Hagerstown or up this way for until maybe the late 70s early 80s you know they the place was named dorsey speedway they raced there a lot and then potomac uh and then like lincoln or williams grove those were a lot of the places i remember as a as a kid going it wasn't until really and maybe in even in the 80s that we started racing at places like hagerstown and winchester places like you know, you, you mentioned your dad, um, you know, in our world, the legendary Bobby Allen, not the sprint car, Bobby Allen, a different Bobby Allen, you know, he had that, he had that 55 yeah. car, you know, that I think I remember reading at one point, Hog, your dad's 55 car, 32 guys drove that car at one point. I think I remember reading that in a Kevin Kovac article. And for me, you know, I'm only 39. So I kind of came into your dad's car owning career late and seeing Larry Moore drive that car, right? And I, I kind of missed the formative years of him in the car and him being a car owner. But one note that I pulled out of a story Kovac did on you was he used the term, you were baptized dirt late model. And I use the term all the time, dirt late model to the bone. I, I just kind of want you to dive into that a little more, Robbie. Like you didn't have a chance, did you? You grow up in dirt late model racing, the son of Bobby Allen, this famous car owner around this mid-Atlantic region. You didn't have a choice, did you? This was what you were going to do. You were baptized dirt late model. Yeah, it, I mean that's like I said, I can't remember a time when I didn't go to the races. That's all we that's really all we did. Uh you know, we didn't I don't remember doing anything else. At one point, my dad got this idea that he was going to go pavement racing and he he bought a he bought which now would be an Xfinity car. Back then it was called I think they called them Great national sportsmen's or whatever, and he built a brand new car, and we went to Martinsville and raced. And by the time this, that weekend was over, he sold everything, and we went back dirt racing. Yeah. <laughs> one so, one weekend, it, uh, one yeah. one race, <laughs> one race. Went one race. He had a friend of his that was actually a a pretty good pavement racer, uh, Dickie Boswell, and uh, he ended up driving the car. And like I said, it only made it one weekend at Martinsville, and and. That was the end of that, and we went back dirt racing. Make so, yeah, make, uh, make yeah. I don't. I didn't really have much of a much of an option as far as is <laughs> what kind of racing I was going to be involved. In. And make the people at home understand too who all drove for your dad, and you're growing up around these people that are driving for your dad. Give these give the fans listening like a, a taste of some of the guys that drove for your dad. These are not nobodies that were in your dad's car. Yeah, I mean he he had definitely. He had way more drivers than he had cars of, of years <laughs> racing. So, you know, and and, he was, and if you talk to a lot of people from that, from years ago, you know, car owners were that way. I know Mark Richards has told me many times that his brother was that way, that basically you had two or three nights, and if you didn't win, he'd get somebody else. <laughs> and, you know, my dad had, had guys that drove for him that drove for multiple seasons. So when you consider that many different people drove, you know, there was guys, Gary Stroller drove for three or four years, and Ronnie McBee drove off and on for three or four years, and Hooper Bear drove for a year or two, maybe three years. 
So when you consider it, he probably only had race cars for 25 years, maybe. There was a lot of one-off, you know, one one driver weekend. Sometimes I remember going to the racetrack and not having a driver. And you would just find one. Get My one. dad used to say, <laughs> he, used to say uh, he used to say race car drivers were like stop signs. There's one on every corner. <laughs> Do you have, is there anybody you remember specifically getting night of? Does anybody jump out to you? You drive to the track and we go, hell, we're going to get there at four o'clock and we'll find somebody. Does anybody stick out? Um, we went to a race one time in Delaware and it was a two day race and we got, we were somewhere, we were at Winchester the night before and, and actually Kenny Brightbill was supposed to drive my dad's car and it ended up raining out. So we went home and they were having a race at Del Mar in Delaware that same weekend. And it was a two day show. And he said, well, why don't we drive down the cars loaded? Everything's ready to go race. Let's go down there. And we got down there and just so happened Gary Stoller was walking through the pits and he was driving for Speedy Hayes, but he was down there just watching. So he was like, hey, Stoller, why don't you drive this car? <laughs> you know, so he ended up starting last and, and winning the race in it. Wow. And so you, and Hog, for you, you're turning wrenches at the age of, you know, and again, I paid you a, a high compliment before we started. I think most people would agree you're one of the greatest crew chiefs in the history of the sport. You're turning wrenches at seven, eight, nine years old, right? With these, this just in the pits, in the mud, in everything at a very young age with your dad. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about turning wrenches, but I was, I mean, I went to the races every night I could go. I mean, I, I mean, that when I was a, when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old, that's all I wanted to do was go to the races. Now, probably like a lot of other kids, once I got to be a teenager and found girls, well, then maybe <laughs> I didn't go quite as long. But, and, you know, yeah, but it was still the same. It was, I was always at the races. You know, I don't know how much I was working on anything or doing anything until I was older, but I was always there. I was always in the pits. I would get really frustrated about if we went to a racetrack and they, you know, back then a lot of times kids couldn't go in the pits. Yeah. So there was nothing worse than having to go, go sit in the grandstand. You know, another interesting thing for me about you with your dad, your dad's business was in Baltimore and, you know, not just in Baltimore, but one of the tougher areas of Baltimore. And for, you know, for those that don't know, Baltimore's a real city, man. It is, it is full of, it is full of people. You know, it's a, it's a tough town, obviously, you know, working class, blue collar, nobody's messing around town. Well, I mean, your dad's, uh, you know, business was in an area I know that was tougher, right? So you, you were exposed to some stuff at a young age that uh, was probably pretty interesting, I'd imagine. Well, yeah, I mean, he, the, the neighborhood that his business was in was, it, I mean, it, it was fairly, fairly rough. I mean, it, it wasn't like you had to fear for your life or anything, but I mean, I grew up, I grew up out in the suburbs. I didn't, I, I didn't grow up in the city. So when I was a young kid, I, I wasn't really around his business very much, you know, cause I couldn't, I couldn't get there on my own, you know, so. But I mean, I was there when I was older, for sure. And it—I mean, it's in a section of the city, which I mean, a lot of a lot of sections of Baltimore are not not easy places to be. But you know, if, if anybody's ever seen The Wire, <laughs> that's that. A lot of that is filmed in the area where my father's business was. Wow. So that it, it i mean, it wasn't like you were were in fear for your life or anything. But it was—I mean, you knew what kind of atmosphere it was, and you just had to pay attention. I mean, you just did do dumb things, but 
but yeah, I mean, it, but I mean, then again, all them years he was in business, never had any problem. Yeah. You know, you've, so. you've worked for more than a few teams in your time and I wanted to get a blow by blow of that. You don't have to, you know, go super in depth on every team, but I wanted you to timeline this for me, hog. So you grow up and you're working, you're helping your dad, right? Obviously your, your dad's got a race team. The first time you had a job that was yeah. not with your dad, can you go chronologically for me one by one? Like, all right, I was with uh, this guy from, you know, 86 to 88, and then I moved on to this guy from 88. Can, can you take me through that? I want people to understand some of the teams you've worked with, and hell, I want to make sure I have it right. Go chronologically from leaving your dad's race team stop by stop if you could. Well, when I, I graduated high school in 88, and I went to work for my dad, and I worked for him for two years, maybe a little longer. And when I was working for him, Booper Bear drove the car for my dad. Well, then I want to say it was either 90 or 90, probably 91, I think. Booper started his own team, and I went to work for him. And I worked for him for all of 91. And then I left after 91, and I worked for, I worked for Bob Pierce when he drove the dependable car yeah for about from like january to like maybe may of 92 and then my dad asked me to come back home because they were racing with uh larry moore running the star circuit so i went back home sometime in may beginning of may or something and i worked there back for my dad for the rest of that year um and then for all of 93, I'm pretty sure I can't, I, I can't remember. You're, you got me stumped here. <laughs> it's been so long ago. At some point in 93, I, I still worked. I worked for my dad and Rick Eckert drove our car. And then in 94, I went to work for Bart Hartman. And I worked for him for roughly maybe half of the year. And then I went to work for Jack Ball the second half of that. Okay. And and then ninety five in ninety five I went I went back home and my dad was gonna he was gonna run some local tracks with a guy who was a pavement racer and so I got involved in that and my dad's health was kind of not good and he wanted to race and so I was home for for then and then towards the end of the year, that guy, the guy who was driving the car, he went back pavement racing, whatever, and they were done racing. And I went and helped Bart Hartman at the end of 95 again for a while. And then my dad passed away in October. So I went back home and then 96, I didn't really, I didn't really do anything as far as work for anybody. I, I went to the races some with, uh, with Dale Bither. Dale Bither was a good friend of my dad and he, he had just hired Gary Stuhler and he asked me, you know, you're not doing anything. Do you just want to go to the races with us and stuff? So I kind of did that. Just went to the races just to do something for 96. And then 97 and 98, I went to work for him full time. And for, then, bite, for Beitler full time with Stuhler. Yeah. They're full time when Stuhler drove in 97 and 98. And then in 99, I went to work for, for Ray Vest and Rick Eckert. And you and were there, there till 06, 2006, right? Till the end of 06. And there, there were some other spots. I went to, 
I went to Speed Weeks one year with Steve Shaver, and uh, I worked with uh, I went I worked for Ronnie Johnson for a month or so at one point, and trying to help out Masterbill do some stuff. And there's been some other odds and ends guys like that that I helped out a little bit. Where those are the Where'd you go after Eckert, right after Eckert? Because obviously you've been with Satterley for a decade, and we're going to talk about that more later. So you've been with Satterley 2011 through 2021, so 06 through 11. Uh, you had the Austin Hubbard years in there. What else am I missing? Yeah, well, I basically, I realized that I had to kind of back down and go and, and come off the road. My daughter was born in 2005, and I wasn't at home enough. And so I just went to work for myself. I was selling cars and, uh, you know, selling shocks. And I was helping, I was consulting for some guys and, uh, Dale Bither called me and he had got Steve Casebolt to drive. And so he wanted me to come with them some and help them. So I did that. And at the same time, the American racer people were interested in doing something with, uh, with Bither on the Lucas Oil tour. So they, they basically hired me, the American Racer people did, to help them and help, you know, because I was already helping Beitler. So I kind of did some stuff for American Racer, and, and it just kind of, I, you know, just did that for off and on. Really, I did that that whole thing where I just consulted and worked for myself up until I went to work for Greg. I want to... Uh, there was some time, like... Go ahead. No, I just I wanted to pull some stuff out of this because you know l- let's look at this list, right? You and I are dirt late model junkies. Bob, Bob Pierce, Larry Moore, Bart Hartman, Jack Boggs, Rick Eckert, Gary Stuhler. These are these are some unbelievable names. I just I was making notes and I'm going I'm ad libbing here. Give me something quick about each one of these stops. Maybe something you learned at each stop. Uh, I'll start with Bob Pierce. Something you learned in your time. It was only six months, but with Pierce. Um, I don't know. I mean, I like to think that that I I've learned something from everybody that I've, that I've worked with. My my dad had an old saying that two heads were better than one, even if one was a head of cabbage. <laughs> so I, I'd like I'd like to think that you know I learned stuff. I definitely you know especially from guys like Pierce and Moore and Jack Boggs, they were so much more experienced me than me when I worked for them. I just learned everything. You know, what I mean, it's like I just I needed to learn everything I could learn. So, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to pick out one thing when it comes to those guys because, you know, they were so, so much smarter than I was at the time and so much more experienced that, you know, every day I was learning stuff. Just even though if you just, you know, sometimes you don't realize you're learning it and you are, you know, being around people that are as good as those guys are. And I mean, I've been lucky. I've helped a lot of all same race car drivers. Jack Boggs in 94, of course, his famous season was 95. You were there the year before, but Boggs is kind of like at the peak of his powers at 94. What was it like spending time with Jack and racing with him that year? The the one thing that I learned specifically from all those kind of guys, Larry Moore, Jack Boggs, is they didn't do anything special. Like they didn't they didn't have parts that nobody had. They didn't have trick shocks and this and stuff that nobody could get they just had race cars that were so fundamentally sound that all they had to worry about was putting the right tires on it and driving it correctly and that's what i learned from from those guys and 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 even to this day like i just always go with the philosophy is 
you know, if everything on that car works like it's supposed to work, that's as good as it can be. Yeah. You know, if the brakes work and the the carburetor works and it don't stumble and, you know, everything's, you know, nothing's bound up and nothing's broke or bent. That's what I learned from those, those guys, because that's how they race. They just, they just beat it into you that everything had to be like it was supposed to be. And if that was the case, that was, that was the hardest part. You know, the, the driving was up to them and, and the changes on the car at the racetrack were very simple that you didn't need to reinvent the wheel every night. Of all of those guys that you worked with, I you know, I wanted to talk about Rick Eckert more for a second. I think you're you're likely hog most associated with him. You know, that was a, a seven year stretch of high success that you guys had. And I and I just said it to Jimmy Mars last week on the podcast and I've said it to Steve Francis. I refer to that era, right? That like call it 97, 98 through 06, 07, 08, to me is kind of like the golden age of dirt late model racing. Eldora's getting 240 cars. The national tours are really starting to get popular. People are traveling and making more money. Am I right about that? You were out there on the road living it with Eckert and Ray Vest. Is that is that the golden era of late model racing to you? Because I kind of think it was. That 97 through 07 was really the pinnacle to me before the economy crashed in 07, 08. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I mean, the, that's when you had, I mean, it was never uncommon to have 70 or 80 cars show up for a race. Uh, you know, Eldor was getting over 200 cars. They Hell, they would have a 2,000-win Sunoco race and get 80 cars. Right. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that's when the, the races paid enough for for the money that everything cost that it was it was the most feasible time to do it i mean basically now we we kind of don't race for much more money than we did then and everything costs 10 times as much so i think that was that some of it you know i mean and there was there was lots of races i mean there was lots of lots of race tracks that wanted to have races and like you said there was there was you know national you know national tour and then there was a bunch of regional tours guys could race you could race a hundred times a year and not break a sweat i mean it, it, finding racing wasn't wasn't a problem so. you know you hit on something there hog that i don't think anybody has ever said to me the most feasible time to do it uh, that's maybe that's the best description of it and i'd love to get like mark richards and those guys opinion and francis but like oh five oh or excuse me like 95 96 through oh five oh six oh seven it might have made the most economic sense during that time. Is that fair to say? Because now it makes no economic sense, right? I, I bring people to the races for the first time ever, and they're like, how much are they racing for? And I tell them, how much does this shit cost? And I tell them, and they're like, well, this makes no <laughs> sense. But did it make, maybe during that 10-year stretch, it made the most sense? Well, yeah, there was, I mean, there were several years when we would win for sure over 300 grand there was years we won 400 grand that was going on 20 years ago yeah you know there ain't many guys out there now winning 300 grand yeah so you know and we weren't it wasn't like we were winning 25 or 30 races a year we were winning eight 10 races 12 races a year and francis was winning eight or ten and mcdowell was winning eight or ten and the bloomquist was you know and yeah. there was a lot of guys winning races it wasn't just like we were the only guy winning and we were still winning three, three to 400 grand a year. So yeah, I mean, the motors were, motors weren't cheap, but you know, they were 30 grand, 30, you know, 32 grand for 
cars were half as much as they are now. You know, diesel fuel was a dollar eighty a gallon. You know, the the trucks and trailers were two hundred grand or two hundred fifty, which sounds like a lot of money, but compared to six hundred, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's not that much different. You know, mutual friend of ours who is a, a, an influential person in the industry says to me all the time, part of the reason it used to be so much better in racing is because nobody had any money. Like, you know, you talked about you guys were winning money and stuff, but I think um, what he really means is it was all about passion and not as much about money then. You guys did it because you're a bunch of psychos, you and Rick and Francis and McDowell going up and down the road. You're crazy people, right? Just like I was when I started Dirt on Dirt. You had no money. You're crazy. You're doing it for the passion. I kind of feel like the opposite is true. Yes, all of these guys, like I know Tyler Herb well. Tyler Herb is insanely passionate about late model racing, but passion was all you had back then. It just seems different now, isn't it? Well, I mean, it, there's so much money involved anymore yeah. that that I think that, I, you know, money changes everything. So, um, you know, it, it's I'm sure that there's there's just as many passionate guys out there now doing it as it was then. I don't. I just think there was so. I think there was more people doing it then because it was more economical to be able to do it. So, you know, now, like you said, nobody's making any money. You know, I mean, well, drivers and crew guys are making money because we get paid to do it by somebody else. But right. there isn't a single car owner out there that's making a dime. I don't care if he makes a million dollars a year. He brings in a million. You know, it's it's just not feasible to make to actually make money with a dirt late model racing team unless somehow you can get good enough sponsors, which that doesn't seem to really be happening. So, uh, it, you know, I mean, I just think it was just more economical to do it back then, so there were more people doing it. You know, I, I, like you said, like Tyler Herb is a good example. He actually he raced every day of the week if he could. So I don't I mean, I don't know how much more passionate you could get. Yeah, that, you're right. But, you're right. But yeah. I, I do think that there's, I do think the commitment level to doing it is not as great. And I think that comes from a lot of people that do it anymore don't have to do it. Like the guys you named off there before, like, like Rick or Francis or Dick, like, I mean, Rick, if he didn't race a car, he's going to have to go drive a truck. You know, Francis was going to have to go to the car lot and sell cars. You know, Dale's going to have to go work, you know, drive a dump truck and work equipment. Racing sounds a whole lot better than all three of them. <laughs> you know, so, you know, like, I mean, there's a lot of guys that race now, and I'm not saying that they're that they're spoiled and they, you know, this, but it's it's just different when you got to make a payment and you got to go do something to make money to live your your passion level's got to be higher, you know, than if you just don't need to do it. So I think that's some of it too because it does cost so much money to do it anymore that just not your average guy that works a good job for a living can afford to go do it. Is it easier to be a crew member? In, I don't want to say crew chief especially because you've been a crew chief for so long. Easier to be a crew chief in 2021 or 2000? Which is harder, which is easier, maybe why? Um, I, I, I think it depends on what you mean by easier. I think labor-wise, physical labor-wise, it's considerably easier. Uh, you know, knowledge and, and 
knowing what to do to these cars, I think is way harder. You know, it's, it's, it takes a lot more mental capacity to be able to be on top of your game and, and be good at this. Uh, the amount of physical labor to do it, I think is considerably easier because you can buy every single part for these cars. You don't have to make anything. Yeah. And they, everything you buy fits and it works and it does what it's supposed to do. Uh, you know, that you're riding up and down the road and half a million dollar haulers with leather couches and satellite TVs and refrigerators and nice comfy, you know, beds to sleep in. And, you know, there's all these, you know, just the tools we have now, you know, there's, you know, the car lift, uh, it just, it just physically, it's just easy, you know, and on top of that anymore, you know, you have two maybe three compounds of tires you're going to run back in 2000 we had 15 we had trailers full of nothing but tires yeah you know hundreds carrying down the road well somebody's got to mount them and groove them you know none of that goes on anymore we go down we leave to go race in halftime and the tire racks are three quarters empty yeah so physical physically it's much easier mentally I I don't I think it's the opposite. I think it's much harder now to be good at it and be on top of your game than it was then. I want unabashed full honesty on this question. From your perspective as somebody who's worked on these cars and has seen about every single avenue of dirt late model racing, if you had a magic wand hog that you could wave right now and let's just call it, you could make two or three things better, right? Just a couple things. I'm going to take my wand, I'm going to, I'm going to wave it, and I'm going to make these two or, things, two or three things better about dirt late model racing. What would it be? Well, well the first, I mean, the first thing would for sure be the tire rules. They're so messed up on so many levels uh, that there's, it, there's almost, it's, it's so bad that it, I don't know that they can ever fix it. Uh, I mean, that's what I see is is the biggest problem as far as when I say problem, I mean as far as a as a racer, like it's just it's just really being the tire rule situation is really being handled poorly by sanction bodies and racetracks and and even racers. I mean, it's you know, sometimes, you know, people say racers are their own worst enemy, and we are. Uh, but it's just, the tire rule situation is bad. And, you know, I, I guess maybe at some point, 20 years ago, that somebody should have realized that the most expensive thing in our racing was the engines, and we should have got a, our hands around that at some point. But, you know, there's, I mean, it's too late for that, too. So there's no sense of worrying about it. But, I mean, on the other hand, I also think that people come to see these cars because they want to see them go fast. They don't want to see limited cars. They don't want to see crate cars. You know, it's the same reason that 410 sprint cars are way more popular than 360 sprint cars. So, you know, some of that stuff where you say, would you fix it? It's like, well, fix it for what? You know, yeah, the engines are really expensive, and that's the most expensive part. But would, would everybody be happier? If we all had crate motors, no, I don't know. You know I, <laughs> no. I wouldn't think. I wouldn't think so. Yeah, but so it, it you know, because some of that stuff is double edged. It's like a double edged sword type thing. But for sure, the tire the tire situation is a problem 
And I mean, it was a problem even before this year with the shortages and stuff. It's been a problem for a long time. But be more specific, uh, Hog. Like, what, what do you mean? Like a, a uniform tire rule coast to coast, 20s, 30s, and 40s everywhere. Is that what you mean? Well, something like that, something along those lines. And I mean, first of all, anybody that thinks that we should be grooving and swiping these tires needs to have their head checked. Because <laughs> why anybody would want to waste all that time and effort to do something that is meaningless, that doesn't need to be done, I don't, I don't understand that on any level. And I've grooved as many tires as anybody that's ever held a groover in, a, in their hand. <laughs> so I don't understand why why that would even be a thing i mean that would be if you brought somebody in from another form of racing and you explained to them our tire rules and what we did to these tires they would look at you like you were crazy <laughs> so you don't think grooving and siping doesn't like it's completely pointless unnecessary totally totally pointless so why do we do it no difference <laughs> so why do we do it because i told you racers are their own worst enemy because i tell you why the same reason that you said to me, what if we went back to having open tire rules? Well, that would be fine with me because I know what all the tires are and I know when to run them. But 90% of these guys out here racing now, they have a hard time figuring out what tire to run when they only have one other choice. So it's a disadvantage to them, but it's an advantage to me. Well, grooving and piping is kind of the same thing. There's a group of people out there that know grooving and siping better than most. Yeah. And what and what they need to do to their tires for certain conditions, certain tracks. So when you say no grooving and siping, there's a whole group of people that are like, no, we should groove and sipe. That's because it's, it's an advantage to them. Which I understand that. Everybody wants to have an advantage. But in the grand scheme of things, why would you want to waste all that time and effort? There is so much time that goes into grooving and siping these tires. And it's like, man, don't you, doesn't people have anything better to do than stand there and look at this stupid tire for an hour? <laughs> you, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I've done it my whole life. And it's, I mean, I just don't understand why we can't pull that off. We almost had it. Eldora was doing it. We had non-grooving, non-plate right rear tires on that Lucas deal. I mean, it, was, it looked like it could happen. And then we blew it all up because we're just, Dumb. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned something to Mary to me, and it was a perfect segue to my next question. You mentioned the motors in 20 years ago. This question's not specifically about motors, but was there a moment in time that could have, and, and I'm probably using the wrong term, so bear with me, but was there a moment in time, an exact moment in dirt late model racing where we could have all looked at each other, everybody, and said, right now, we have a chance to make this thing cheaper for everybody involved, and for all time, we can keep it affordable. Was there a moment in time we could have done that and we just crossed it and pushed through it, and like you said, it's too late? I mean, is there like you? I can hear it. Maybe there's a hog you would say, yep, January 2003, we had a chance. and it, it, Is there something like that or not? I don't think so because it goes back to the same thing. 20 years ago, if we would have all said, look, Everybody's got to have 18 degree headed engines and run steel blocks or whatever. Well, the motors would, would be considerably cheaper, but then again, do you want to see super late model cars or do you want to see limited late model cars? Right. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a problem there that's 
you know, it's the people come to see these cars because they are fast and they're way faster, way more fun to watch than lower division cars. So would that work? Would it not? I mean, it would definitely say you could definitely have done something like that and save everybody money. But would would the outcome be the same 20 years later? Would there be a fan base that wants to come see these cars? Because I, I know I can go right over here to Hagerstown and they don't have super late model cars. And they have all the they have limited cars and they might have crates and they'll have some other divisions. And that's fine. They'll have plenty of cars, but there's nobody in the grandstand. Right. And there's a reason for that, I guess. It's because people don't want to, people want to see stuff go fast. Right. You know, you... so I, I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a problem there. I mean, it, it, it would be nice if it was all cheaper, yeah. but it's not, and it's not going to be, and yeah, I we agree. probably should stop worrying about it. You were, you know, it's, you know, you, I don't want, I don't want to seem like I'm only dwelling on the bad or negative stuff. You did touch on like the things that were easier now about dirt late model racing. Give me something else. What's something that's better about dirt late model racing now than it was in 2001 or 99? What's something else that's better? Um, I think the cars in general are, I just, I like the cars. I mean, I like, I like the, I think the cars look better. They, they race drive better they don't look like they're going to roll over and and like the guy driving them doesn't know where he's going half the time you know i mean that's what cars back then looked like when they had the left front tire off the ground and dragging the skirts off of them and they just looked like the cars it looked like whoever was working on them didn't know what they were doing (laughs) and i think the way i think our cars now are good looking race cars i think they they look good on the track i think the racing's pretty good as long as the track's prepared correctly and they're and they're considerably easier to work on. Like I said, you don't have to make anything anymore. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I think that the even twenty years ago, we had to real we had to still make a lot of stuff. Yeah. Where now, I mean, you literally don't have to make anything. Yeah. And I kind of like I kind of like that because I'm old and I don't feel like doing a lot. You know, you you were like you said, you weren't born and raised in Hagerstown, but you'll always kind of be associated with it just because of you were there at a young age, and you know, Eckert won there a lot, and Stuhler and all those guys. And to me, Hagerstown is one of the ten greatest brand name tracks in late model history: Eldora, Florence, Bulls Gap, West Plains, Fairbury. You know, Hagerstown is in there in that group, right? Legendary history, big events. It's just a tent pole name in the history of our sport. You know, I get the wax poetic all the time about Fairbury and Illinois and how much I love it. I'm going to give you the clock now, Hog. Give me a solid minute on Hagerstown and why it's special and why that region is so special. Well, I mean, Hagerstown just, it was, first of all, it was always a good place to race. And, you know, the racetrack's always been good. Uh, it's a shame that it's to the point where it is now it, because it, it was a, it was a top 10 dirt late model racetrack in the country kind of place for a long, long time. And I don't know it. it I mean, they had, I think they might've had the first 50,000 to win race ever in like 1980, what, three or four or five, somewhere in there. Maybe. I, I mean, I know they had one. I don't know if it was the first ever, but it, if it wasn't, it was the second. I don't, you know, they had big paying races back when there were no big paying races. Hell, they paid 2000 to win on weekly shows in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the competition level was always 
Hagerstown was a place that when they did have big races and they had other guys come in, half of the top 10 was local folks. It wasn't just a place where when they had a big race that paid big money, all the outsiders came in and, and, and ran up front and beat everybody up. It wasn't a place like that. Yeah. It was a place where the local cars were really good and they had really good equipment and there was a lot of really good drivers. Yeah. So, you know, and, and stuff like that, I'm sure you were, you know, stuff like that is what brings fans to the racetrack. Yep. You know, can, can these four or five local guys that win all the time, can they beat the Freddie Smith and the Larry Moores and those guys? And, and there was, you know, they won as many of them races as the, as the outsiders won. So it was a place that that was a pretty big deal, especially back then because weekly racers didn't win those races at most places. You know, like a place that reminds me of this, it was kind of like Hagerstown was that way. It was like Brownstown. Oh yeah, for sure. You went there, guys that race there all the time, you just weren't going to beat them. It just was not that easy. And uh, Hagerstown was one of those places too, you know, and I think that was some of it that, that was some of the allure that if you went, if you went to Hagerstown on for any race and you ran up front or you won, you felt like you had accomplished something. Yeah. And there was, there's very few racetracks around the country that have that mystique about them. That if you go there and win, you could go other place, big places and win. And, and there's not many tracks that are like that. For like, I think that was a big deal for them. Yeah. No, and you're right. Brownstown's another perfect example of that, right? I think back in the day in East Tennessee, it was like that too, right? You know, and the Ogles and all those guys. And Central yeah. Illinois always had that with Bob Pierce and Shannon Babb and all those guys. I, I want to shift to something else. I feel, yeah. I feel like this is like the 10th straight Rigsby Report podcast where I will ask the guest a question about the Hoosier Goodyear Outlaws Extreme Battle of 2004. <laughs> you were, it's just, it's such a part of the history of our sport. You were Rick Eckert's crew chief at the time. If I just walked up to you, Hog, and said, man, what do you remember most about that year and that whole thing? What would you say? I remember a lot of pissed off people, <laughs> is what I remember. Seemed like, I don't know, like, I mean, it goes back to that same thing. Maybe we're our, our own worst enemy. Maybe maybe if we would have all went and ran good years, maybe that would have worked out better. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know that for the guys that didn't go do that extreme deal, it worked out really good monetarily for the rest of them. Uh, you know, with the word of outlaws and, and, and all that. And, you know, I, so it's, you know, said Doug Bland didn't have bad idea. He had some probably some pretty good ideas, but he was also looking to make a bunch of money, which I don't fault the guy for that. But when when other people decided that they wanted to make some money too and just not do whatever he wanted to do, well, then that seemed to be a real big problem. And it to me, in my mind, it always it didn't make a lot of sense for there to be much of a problem. It's like. Well, if he's paying this money and good money and doing that and Warner Battles are, then what difference does it make? Yeah. It, it's like now with Warner Battles and Lucas. It's like, well, who who cares what if you're running Lucas? Well, who cares what the Warner Battles say or do? Because you're not. That's not how you make your living. It's not a big deal. So why worry about it? And that's that's kind of what I always thought back then. It it just seemed like there was a lot of people mad all the time. 
yeah. and over over really over really nothing. I don't know. I mean, I would understand if I was Doug Bland and he was mad because you know he was trying to do something and he was trying to make a living, and I'm sure that weren't about all deal that you know it 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 stopped him from doing it. But you know, there's people that maybe had a reason to be upset like that, but the general racers in general, I don't know. It's just like now, it seemed to me like it was a good thing for the race. You know, before that, there was only one series. Yeah. And there was only so many spots and only so much money. So, I don't know. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm sure people have different opinions about it, but I, I didn't really see where it was as big of a deal as a lot of people made it out to be. I, I don't I had to I had to double check this to make sure I was right about it. But you've now been with Greg Satterley for ten years. Ten. That is, you know, when I'm looking back, and that's yeah. why I wanted you to run through things, Hog. That's your longest tenured crew chief stay. I mean, you know, outside of you know, from the time you were ten years old to however old you were with your with your father, ten years is a long time for you, man. And you've been with Greg for ten years. Why has it worked? Why a decade with Greg Satterley? Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know. They're, they're really easy people to work for. I mean, so, and I mean, my shop is three hours from them. Maybe that's the reason we're, <laughs> we're, we're not together every day. Maybe. I don't know. But, uh, I mean, you couldn't ask for better people to work for than Gary and Greg. And, and, you know, it's, it's good for me because the cars are kept at my shop, which is 500 foot from my house. So I'm at, I'm at home every day and it's just really, it, it's just been a really good fit. And we're, we are look both kind of looking to get the same thing out of it. You know, we're, he's not, he doesn't have grandiose plans of he's going to be the next Lucas Oil champion and he's going to be, you know, the greatest dirt lane model driver that's ever, ever raced. And, I don't want to go back on the road really and race a hundred times a year. And, you know, everything works. It, it just all works. Good. It, you know, we, we've kind of always got along. I helped Greg. I consulted with Greg and stuff even before I went to work for him full time. I had worked with him some. And, uh, you know, I mean, I wouldn't, have, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, would you still be working for him for 10 years? I'd say probably not because that's just not how things in racing go. But, I, I can't imagine working, you know, working for anybody else now. I mean, it's, it's just too easy and they make it really easy for me. So I, I don't know how much more I could ask for. He, in a uh, job, you know, it's, he asked me actually one thing before that, Greg seems like just one of the nicest freaking people you've ever met. Is he actually that nice? Give us the straight scoop. Is, is there an evil side to yeah. Greg Satterley yeah. that I don't know about? <laughs> Yeah, he's. Uh, I mean, him and his dad both. Him and Gary both. And you couldn't meet nicer people. And I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's 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 just easy to work for him. You know, it's not. You know, it, there's no struggle on any level. You know, so it he is that nice. And, and Gary the same way. Gary, he'd love nothing more than for you to have something wrong with your motorhome so he could go down there and help you work on. <laughs> you know, he they're just that kind of people. You know, and. You, you don't run into a lot of people like that, but you know, I, I, I'm just lucky, I guess I, you know, and, and that goes back to the same thing too. I would like to think that that was one thing that you asked me, you know, 
can you say stuff that you learned from people that you raced with or whatever? That was one thing that I did learn in, in the years that I worked for Rick is like, you know, I mean, Rick drove for Ray Vesper. How long? I don't, I mean, yeah. 20 years, long, long time. And the one thing I learned from, from watching him and him deal with Ray is, is how to treat the people that you race for and yeah. work for. And I thought he did a really good job of that compared to other places where I had been and seen how owner driver crew situations worked. So that was something that, that I took into account with, you know, when I worked for Greg and I'd like to feel like maybe I had an idea of how to act and how to treat people that I work for, you know, cause basically these people are trusting me with a million dollars worth of equipment going up and down the road. And I'm kind of in charge of what happens to it. So that's, he um he asked me to tell he asked me to ask you to tell the Chad Hollenbeck at Heston story. Do you want to tell that story, Hog? <laughs> who who asked you that, Rick? Gr- no, Greg. Saturday said, "Have Hog oh, tell you the Chad Hollenbeck at Heston story." Do you want to, do you want to tell that story quick or no? <laughs> well, I'll give you the highlight. Uh you know, it goes back to the same thing I was talking about, about when you're trying to make money, you know, you have to make money to live. And there was a, there was a considerable amount of money on the line at this, at this Heston racetrack for some points and some races we had run and the race that night. And we just got completely run over by a guy that basically drove like his helmet was on backwards. <laughs> and then he decided that he thought it was funny. Him and his crew guys thought it was funny. and. You know, I don't say a whole lot most of the time, but generally when I get mad, people know it. (laughs) And I don't know what happened. Some, they were mad. Somehow his car fell off the lift and I thought that was funny. (laughs) So they thought us crashing and and him basically costing us about $10,000 was funny. And I thought his car fell off the lift. I thought that was funny. Well, to be fair here, car fell off the lift. I think it was nudged off the lift, if I am hearing the story correctly. Is that right? <laughs> oh, technically, if something is, something's on top of something, and it, then it's not, it fell off. So. <laughs> okay. I, I'll, I'll let the audience read between the lines. Uh, one thing with Greg... You guys, you know, you did the Lucas tour for a while. Now you're not doing it. I know your kids are getting older. You know, they're, they're, I think your kid's 16 and 11 hog. Is that right? About, am I close there? Yeah. 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 My daughter's 16 and my son's 11. Okay. It'll be 12 in December. You guys did the national tour thing for a while. You're not doing it anymore. Uh, you know, is that, is it a better life? Is it just a, a nicer life knowing you can kind of go, you know, you be home with your kids who are growing up and you don't have to be in North Dakota on a Tuesday if you don't want to. It seems like you and Greg are comfortable in that together. Yeah, and, and I mean, honestly, it, it was his idea to go run the Lucas stuff. And like I told him, I, you know, when I went to work for him, I said, look, I, I was fine with the way we raced then, which is kind of the way we race now. And I said, but if you want to go run that stuff, you know, I've done it my whole life. It's not that big of a deal to me. Uh, and I'm I'm better at it now than I was 20 years ago. So it, it it was fine to go do that. And after we did it for two years, he decided that 
that was fine. That he did what he wanted to do, and that was good enough. So, and that's what I told him. He said, "Well, you're gonna, you know, probably make less money if we don't do this because you get percentage and stuff." And I said, "Hey, man, I've already done it. It's fine with me. Yeah. I, I'm perfectly fine with going where we want." And 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 that's the thing that it's always kind of been that way. Where if Greg wants to take off a weekend to go do something, we take off. If if I want to take off to go to the beach with my wife and kids, we take off. You know, we don't. We don't sweat it. We just go, and we don't go to places we don't want to go to. Yeah. And it 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 keeps it. I think if we raced like a lot of guys race, that we would already quit racing. <laughs> that it just would have been too much time and effort and nothing. You know, Greg likes to do a lot of things. I I don't really do that much besides race, but I do enjoy being at home. Uh. But I don't think that that either one of us want to be out on the road 200 days out of the year. Last couple of things I want to get to before I get to my true or false, and I, I end every podcast with true or false. I really do consider you, Hog, one of the great historical minds of all time. You know, you know the history of the sport, not only of this sport, but really of all motorsports. Part of that to me, as much as that I am an Illinois guy, you are a kind of mid-Atlantic guy. Some say Northeastern, but I think more mid-Atlantic. You know, you've got big blocks, sprint cars, late models. You kind of have it all there. I really think growing up, because Kovac's the same way you are, you know, the area you guys grew up in, I just think lends itself to you guys having these really well-rounded motorsports minds. Am I reading too much into that? Because anybody I ever meet from over there in Southern PA, Northern Maryland, you guys just know a lot of shit about a lot of kinds of racing. I just think it's where you guys grow up, honestly. Well, I mean, there was a lot of, there's a lot of racetracks that aren't real far where you can see different kinds of cars race. I mean, you know, if you live in Baltimore, you could you could own a dirt late model car and you could drive an hour and a half and go race it. And if you wanted to, you could earn a, own a 410 sprint car and drive and go to racetracks that are an hour away and race it. If you if you wanted to race a big block car, you could drive over to Delaware or drive up. I mean, even New Jersey, some of them tracks like Bridgeport is literally an hour and a half from Baltimore. Right. You know, so like. And, and then there was lots of pavement racing, like back in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Like there was a lot of late model pavement stuff in Northern Virginia that isn't very far from where I grew up. So I got to see a lot of different kinds of cars. Um, and and in return, I got to see a lot of really good race car drivers. I mean, even at Hagerstown, they they had four ten, four mile sprint car races. They had you know, dirt, big block modified races that got all the best guys from New York to come and race, you know? And so you got to see all those guys a lot. I mean, not just one, once a year, it'd be a couple of times. Top five dirt late model drivers all time. Go. Wow. Top five. Well, we know two, right? I mean, any list that does not we have know- Bloom Kistemoyer on it is okay. nonsense. So we know okay. two. Okay. Top, top three, except for Scott. And yeah, Scott and Billy are one and two. All right, who's three, four, five? <laughs> um, man, I don't know. Uh, man, uh, 
I gotta have three. I mean, some of the I gotta have three. Some of the gotta have gotta have three. Uh, I don't know that. I mean, here anymore, this that Davenport's making a case for himself. He's won three World One Hundreds in five years. Four, he's won four total. <laughs> right. Four. Yeah, I mean that's 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 Jeff Purvis kind of stuff. Uh, I mean Purvis was really good. Larry Moore was really good. You know, you know, there was a there was a, a a span of time there when Jimmy Owens was. You know, you thought maybe this guy, the same way Jonathan Davenport looks now, like over the last ten four years, like, man, this guy's awful good, yeah. winning a lot of races. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, that's more than that's more than three. But you got to. I want you locked into three. Are you going JD, Larry Moore, or those two, and one more, or who? No Boggs, no Schwartz, none of those guys. I, and it's hard to say. I mean, and then you got guys like Freddie Smith. You know, I watched watched him race a lot, and that guy was awful good. I, you know, it, it's just there's I've seen so many. That's what I want. That you really, gotta pick three. I'm. I, we're not moving on until I get three. three. Until I hit three from you, we're not moving on. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, let's say uh, we're going to say Larry Moore, Jimmy Owen, and I think right now I, I really think JD could be in there. JD and 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 Freddie Smith are right there. I, I you know them guys are in there. You know. JD's got a lot, a lot of racing left to do. If, if somehow he could have fifteen more years of racing like he's had the last five, man, it'd be it'd be hard to bet against that guy that he shouldn't be in that group. And I love that I got three names out of you, but isn't it kind of crazy? Like, there's not a lot of sports hog where number one and number two are so obvious, right? Like, there's anybody that tells you one and two, and I think Scott, I'd put ahead of Billy, but I nobody else is ahead of Billy for number two. It is. Anybody that has anybody but Bloomquist or Moyer one and two to me, it's like I can't even take your list seriously because Purvis didn't race long enough, right? To 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 get to those guys' well, level, well, in my opinion. The, that's the whole thing. It's like uh, it's like trying to say, are the Beatles better than the Rolling Stones? Well, the Rolling Stones are eighty years old and they're still playing. <laughs> the Beatles haven't played in thirty years, so you know, right. it, it it's hard to judge off of a guy like Purvis who. That's what I'm saying about JD. You you know, it's like, well, if this guy keeps going, but then again, if Purvis would have kept going, what what would that have looked like? Right, but he didn't. Just like Bo Jackson, he so, didn't. He didn't. Right, so we can't. You know, so yeah, you can't. I mean, you would like to think that the rest of his career would have been just phenomenal, and he would have maybe been one of the best of all time, if not the best. But it goes back to the same thing. You know, Moyer and Scott. They kind of started around the same time, and they raced forever. And they've, they've won all the biggest races, and, and they've raced for 35, 40 years, whatever it is. Nobody, nobody else has raced as long as they have and won the races they have. Now, there's plenty of guys like Purvis, or like, like I said about J.D. now, that you, know, you think to yourself, and if they keep going, they're – right there with them right but until they get that far until they get 30 years in how do you know 
Okay, a couple more quick ones before we get to true or false. Best of the current young guys. You're you're holding a draft right now, right? You can only draft one current young guy as your number one pick. Your future franchise quarterback. Who's hog picking? Oh, that's easy. That, that that's way easier than the last question. Okay. Is 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 Bobby Pierce? Why? He's just he's just the best. He's just better than the rest of them. <laughs> I mean, there's no other way to put it. He's, he, he, you know, he, he just, I'm not putting anybody else down, but he's just, as far as young guys go, he's just better. You spent time with his dad. Um, yeah, I guess, shit, you were with Bob in 92. Bobby wouldn't even have been born yet in <laughs> 92. Uh, <laughs> yeah. are, are you surprised? And I mean, I'm not, obviously. I watched him race a crate when he was super young. But Bobby's ascension to this level, are you surprised how good he is or no? No, not really, because if you ask me of all the guys I ever helped, who was maybe one, like the best just natural talent behind the wheel, Bob Pierce would be in the top three. Wow. Okay. You know, I, I think so. I mean, I mean, I've watched I watched that guy race a lot. I worked for him. Just, just talent to drive a race car. He was real. Bob was really good. Uh, another guy that I thought the same thing about was Ronnie Johnson. Yeah. I helped that guy, and that guy was a that guy was the smoothest race car driver I think I've ever ever seen race. He was just so good. He just never made mistakes, and he just he just had a, an ability to drive. I, you know, I'm not going to say he's better than Scott Bloomquist, but when you say just pure driving ability alone, you know, I, I there's a handful of guys out there that that stick out in my mind that that I helped that I thought, man, that guy really is talented above most people, and I that's what I think about Bobby. I see him race, and I see some of the stuff he does. And I mean, does he do some some dumb stuff and make some boneheaded moves? Yeah, but all young people do that. Yeah. Okay. But as far as talent to drive a car, I think that he's just he's just better than the other guys. I don't know any other way to put it. I want the wildest thing that's ever happened to you in all the thousands of miles you've driven up and down the highways over the years. I love wild road stories; they're my favorite. Don't bullshit me here either, Hog. What is the wildest thing that ever happened to you on the road? Wild, um, like tire blew out. We almost went well, over a bridge. I, we were dangling. What do you, what do you got? <laughs> I, I tell you the truth. The probably the very first trip that I went on going to Speed Weeks when I went to work for Rick Eckert and Ray Vest. They had had a Ray had had a brand new engine put in that the hauler before over the winter, and we're cruising down ninety five down there in South Carolina somewhere. And this motor proceeds to blow up. And I, when I say blow up, it cuts itself in half. Oh, jeez. So where the only thing holding the block together is the head. And it blows the oil pan off of it. And there's oil and antifreeze and shit all over the highway. And there's, there's cars behind us all but crashing for all this stuff <laughs> over the highway. And we got a guy came and towed that thing, towed the truck and trailer to Brunswick. And Ray Vest sent a crew of his guys down with another engine, and they put an engine in that truck in the pit area. From <laughs> that was the first trip I ever went on with that. Group. What a start! Uh, 
<laughs> I love that. Hey, one last one before true or false. Uh, you, I've really gotten into Formula One lately, and a full thank you to the Netflix series Drive to Survive. It, it has worked on me. I've gotten into Formula One. I'm a big Max Verstappen guy. I love Max. I heard that you are an F1 guy also. You watch it. Uh, who's your favorite driver? In, is that right? Are you a big F1 guy? Yeah, I love – that's my I, – I literally, besides dirt late model racing, and I mean dirt racing in general, I watch sprint cars and modifieds and stuff, but I don't watch any motorsports at all besides Formula 1, really. I, I mean, you couldn't pay me to watch a NASCAR race on any level, any of them. It just, it just doesn't in, interest me. Uh, but Formula 1, I've watched since I was a kid. I can remember getting up at 5 in the morning when there's, they used to be on on uh, ESPN back when ESPN, when nobody knew what ESPN was. <laughs> right. When I was a kid, like and and watch. But yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's the one thing that I wish that I could have done in in my racing careers. If I could have ever worked on one of those cars, that would have been that would have been the greatest thing ever. I think that those cars are just the technology and the speed and. And it just, they're just awesome race cars. I, I mean, they're just the fastest, most technical, technologically advanced cars on the planet. And to be a part of that would be amazing. I've got you pegged as a Daniel Ricardo guy, who I love Ricardo also. Are you, or maybe Carlos Sainz. But Max is my guy. I know people, Max Verstappen rubs people the wrong way. He's my, who's your favorite driver, Hog? Um, and I like, I like Daniel Ricardo. I like him because he's, because he passes people like he's a, <laughs> right. He, he tries right. When he, even when he wins races, he don't get to start up front. He starts back some and passes people to win. Probably my probably my favorite of all time is Alonso. I like oh, yeah. Fernando Alonso. Yeah, Fernando. Uh, I like him. You know, it's 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 hard to you know like when you watch that Lewis Hamilton race, it's hard not to think, man, that guy is unbelievable. Yeah, of what he's been able to accomplish and. And I think for stopping, I'm I'm with you. He's he's amazing. You know, it, it goes back to that same thing when you were asking me about Bobby Pierce. He's formed the one's version of Bobby Pierce. Yeah. It's like you can't believe somebody that young could be that talented, but then again he he makes some questionable decisions sometimes. <laughs> but 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 he's just that good. He just thinks he can do it. You know, what I mean yeah. he's he just thinks I there's nothing I can't do. But yeah, I'm but I enjoy I I I TiVo every I I watch I watch the practices I watch practices of oh, Formula One. You're eight up. <laughs> you're eight up. Yeah, I I mean I just I enjoy it on every level. I follow on Twitter, it, all that. I mean everything. I mean any anything Formula One. I watch YouTube videos about to explain rules and I just like yeah. It's I'm eight up with it. I just love it. I I wouldn't watch the Daytona 500 if you paid me, but I'd watch free practice one from freaking <laughs> Azerbaijan. Uh, and there's something so like beautiful about formula one. First of all, the people are all beautiful, right? And my wife jokes all the time. They all look like yeah. male models. Number one, their wives are all supermodels. Yeah. It's on the Monaco. I mean, it's just gorgeous, right? The whole thing, you know? Yeah. And I could never work on one of them cars because, there's not even a fat crew guy. <laughs> even I don't think they make crew uniforms that would fit me. Uh, you're right. They're all very in shape. Everyone is very in shape. In the yeah, every, every, everybody looks like they just came from the gym. I told Amber too. Even the media guys, like Ben Shelton's hair, can't even compare to the media guys on the Formula One. Those big <laughs> sky microphones. I'm like, God, look, I am a hideous beast compared to these guys. So, 
Uh, okay. Well, well, speaking of that, I got to talk to that. Uh, I, I got to talk to that uh, Will Buxton at at Peter Show one year, and that was that was the coolest thing I've ever done. Oh God, that is cool. I would love to talk to Will. Oh man. Oh God. Well, all right. Let's wrap this up with true or false. This interview has been incredible, Hog. Thank you. Here we go. I got four or five true or false questions for you to end this interview. First one, true or false. When you were a young kid, let's call it 10 or 11 years old, you would go to the races and let's just say you were a little bit of an Henri kid and the guys that you would go with, I have been told would duct tape you to a chair in the hotel room and leave you there if you didn't behave well. Is that true or false, Hoghead? That's true. <laughs> That's true. And, 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 you know, there's something wrong with grown adults that duct tape a 12 year old to a chair and leave him at a hotel in Missouri and go to the racetrack. that's 20 miles away. There's something wrong, there's something wrong with people that you would go to jail now. If you did something like that, I asked the person who told me this, I said, I mean, like, were you a little... No, they were not worried. They said you were behaving so poorly, they were not worried about it. So, <laughs> yeah. All right, what a start to true or false. Second true or false question. I have heard that you are an unbelievable trivia buff, like almost like Jeopardy level good. Is that true or false? Yeah, I mean, I that's... Besides Formula One, I'd love to watch Jeopardy. <laughs> and... For the most part, depending on the categories, for the most part, I can get way more right than I get wrong. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Maybe you should. You know, Aaron Rodgers was trying to be the Aaron Rodgers was trying to be the Jeopardy host. What about Robbie Allen? We should have considered it. I don't know. Hopefully, I can do a better job than he did. He was awful. I agree. He was terrible. Now, what I as a Bears fan, I would have enjoyed him staying the Jeopardy host. But uh, okay, Uh, (laughs) third, third true or false? Butch Hartman who built his son Bart Hartman's motors. True or false, you once went into Butch's office after Bart had been struggling, and you said, you know what, I know you build the motors, but we need to get Drame motors instead. Is that true? Well, no, that's not exactly true. <laughs> okay, you explain uh, then. That's not exactly true. Uh, I, did, I did tell Bart that we needed <laughs> to get store-bought motors. I didn't tell, I didn't tell Butch that. And honestly, Butch didn't build the motors. I'm pretty sure that Bart's brother was mainly building the motors, but, but yeah, I did, I did tell him, I I told him basically I was going to quit if we didn't, if we didn't buy motors from somebody because I was tired of blowing up all the time. (laughs) All right. Well, it was, you know, that's why it's called true or false. So that was false. It wasn't totally true. It was false. Okay. Uh, Two more to go here. True or false. You were an accomplished lacrosse player in high school and there's a quote I got from someone. He would quote knock the shit out of people with his lacrosse stick. Is that true or false? I don't know if I was accomplished at all. I, I like to play. I mean, but uh, I mean, I wasn't. No, I, I was not a standout lacrosse player by any means. But I did play lacrosse. I I, I enjoyed it. And hitting some hitting somebody period is is pretty fun. <laughs> So, if you hit so, him with a stick or not, it's still pretty fun one way or the other. So you would agree that knocking the shit out of people with your stick, that part is true. You would agree you would agree with that. Oh, yeah, I enjoyed that. 
Okay. Yeah, I enjoyed that. All right, final true or false question, final question of the interview. You once set up Lego displays in a department store in Baltimore, in or around Baltimore there. So in essence, true or false, you are a real-life Buddy the Elf. Is that true? That That is true. Uh, that was the only job I ever had besides racing. As I worked in Montgomery Ward when I was in high school at, at the Annapolis Mall. And I worked in the toy department. And I got to set up like Lego displays and Lincoln log displays and put bicycles together and weight benches and stuff. So you were you're basically Will that Ferrell. Was my job. You're basically Will Ferrell from now. <laughs> basically Will Ferrell without the costume. <laughs> I am gonna bring was, you some, some, there's been plenty of days I wish I still had that job. <laughs> <laughs> uh what a perfect way to end it. You're off the hook for true or false. Hog, we went um, well over an hour, man. This was—I I have had you high on my list of people to interview. Uh, I got just got some great information. I think people are really going to enjoy this. So I, I think it's important that you know too. You know, in a, you know, as we still are recording for this interview here, I wanted to tell you this on air. I don't know that you even know how well respected you are, and I mean that when I say it. When you talk to the people that whether it's Mark Richards or Keith and Tater or any racetrack promoter, shot, you know, Scott Kai, it doesn't matter. You are maybe one of the five or six most well-respected people in the entire industry. And I mean that. And I hope you, you know, I know you made the joke about some days you wish you still had that job, man, but I hope you know how well-respected and appreciated your contributions to the sport have been. Cause they're, they have been many, man. That's, I mean, it's always good to hear stuff like that. I mean, that makes you feel good about yourself. Sure. I mean, I was I was lucky that I grew up in a family that raced, and I, my dad told me one thing with, about racing is you needed to surround yourself by smart people. And I've kind of I saw him do that with with you know car builders and engine builders, and I've always tried to just associate with people that I thought maybe were smarter than I was, <laughs> so <laughs> that way I could kind of follow along and maybe learn something. Well, I, I I think it's pretty clear you've learned something. Thank you for the hour, bud. I appreciate it. I'm sure I'll see you before the season's over somewhere, and I will bring you uh, an elf costume. Uh, either that or I will get you a Ferrari Formula One outfit, one of the two, and you can work on Greg's car one day at the track wearing it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Give, give, me a, give me a crew uniform, size, size extra, extra small. Uh, all right. Thanks, Hog. All right. I'll see you. There is only one Robbie Allen, uh, and I think you heard that right there. You know a lot of people say, man, they broke the mold when they made him. I don't know if truer words have ever been spoken than breaking the mold. There is only one Hoghead, only one Robbie Allen. You know, I said this about Jimmy Mars, but I mean it here too. If you see Hog in the pits, stop and talk to him. His brain is right up there with a Mark Richards or a Larry Moore on the historical front of dirt late model racing. He can tell you some stories, man. I mean all-time stories. So stop by that Greg Satterley pit area and just pick Robbie Allen's brain. Uh, Thanks to Hog for taking the time. I appreciate it. We'll be back in a few weeks. I think we're going to take a week off with the one and only Kevin Kovac. There aren't many people that know the ins and outs of the sport more than uh, one of our best writers, Dirt on Dirt, um, maybe our best writer, and a guy that's been around dirt track racing his entire life, Kovac. 
Uh, that's going to be more of a let's just rap about the sport podcast, right, than anything else. Let's just BS about the season as we wind towards the end of the year and we get into October, November. And just Kovac and I just talking all things during late mile racing and maybe even some big block racing and some sprint car racing too. So thanks to Hog. Uh, look forward to Kevin in a couple weeks, and uh, we'll be back soon. Thanks. Thanks.